a deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Deeper Look Podcast. I'm Patrick Fine, CEO of FHI 360. One of the things I love about A Deeper Look is that it gives me the opportunity to speak with some of the most thoughtful and effective leaders working in international development. Today, our topic is peace building and humanitarian response, and I have the great privilege of having Nancy Lindbergh, President of the United States Institute of Peace, as my guest. Nancy, welcome to A Deeper Look. Thank you, Patrick. Delighted to be here. Listeners, before we dive into the substance of today's discussion, now is the time to subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you won't miss an episode. After you listen, please post comments. I've received some terrific, thought-provoking comments, so I'd love to hear from you. Now, as our loyal listeners know, we're focusing this year on humanitarian crises and emergency response. And today's topic on peace building is critical to exploring how to prevent and mitigate crises or use our responses in ways to help build more sustainable solutions. No one's better suited to address this topic than Nancy Lindbergh. Since 2015, Nancy has served as president of the United States Institute of Peace, an independent institution founded by Congress to provide practical solutions, emphasis on practical, for preventing and resolving violent conflict around the world. Before that, she was at USAID as the Assistant Administrator in the Bureau for Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance, where she focused on building resilience, managing and mitigating conflict, and providing urgent humanitarian assistance. She led USAID's responses in the ongoing Syria crisis, the droughts in the Sahel and the Horn of Africa, the Ebola response, and numerous other global crises. And before USAID, Nancy was president of Mercy Corps, one of the most important humanitarian response organizations in the world. So there is really nobody better suited to talk about this topic. So without further ado, let's get started. Happy to get going. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Patrick. So first, before I ask you about the work of USIP, um, and peace building and how that relates to or interacts with humanitarian response, I bet our listeners would like to know what got you into the humanitarian sphere in the first place. That's a good question. You know, I was on track with my literature degree to getting a PhD and being an English professor. There you go, English majors. <laughs> <laughs> English majors unite. I'm a big fan. But I got sidetracked through a trip to Nepal. It changed my life, and I became acquainted with a whole different world. I encountered the Tibetan refugees and started working on those issues. Mm -hmm. And it, it just changed my life. I ended up living and working both in Nepal and then in Central Asia. And then when I joined Mercy Corps in the mid-90s, that put me on a road, not just working on international development, but also the humanitarian mm -hmm. issues. And starting with the Kosovo and the Bosnia Wars, it's been pretty much a focus on all the great crises of the last 23 years. 
So I know you've been traveling to many areas over the last year where there are ongoing conflicts or other humanitarian crises. What is the role of USIP? What takes you to those areas? Sure. Well, as you said in the intro, USIP is mandated to look at what are the very practical ways that we can more effectively prevent and resolve violent conflict. And we work to connect research, best practice with policy and application on the ground where we work with partners to equip them to do a better job. And we have the guiding light that there will always be conflict. Wherever mm -hmm. there are humans, there so will it, be it conflict. It goes with our species. It goes it. with our species. But that well-managed conflict can actually be transformational. And we see this in our country. Some of the great movements, civil rights, women's rights, environmental. I mean, it's changed our country for the better. But when that conflict becomes violent is when it tears apart families, communities, and countries. And my office looks out at the Lincoln Memorial, which mm -hmm. is really a daily reminder of what happened in our country where conflict did not get well managed and ended up tearing our country apart. Right. You mentioned research. Do you create or produce evidence to look at what kinds of actions will help to prevent or mitigate crises? Yes, both through the work of experts on our team and through grants and fellowships to PhD students, we look at the kind of research that helps provide that evidence basis. Now, for example, we have a whole practice area on nonviolent civil resistance. Mm -hmm. And Maria Stefan and our team has been one of the leaders in documenting that uh, you actually have more durable, peaceful change when it occurs through nonviolence. Uh -huh. And that when it moves into violence is when you have uh, a greater likelihood that you'll revolve back into conflict. And there's a whole suite of very practical tools that we train on, uh, on how to have those kinds of movements be more cohesive, uh, and that when the, those movements are more uh, broadly inclusive is when you have a better chance of actually having positive change. Right. You know, uh, I'm curious about the tools. Uh, years ago, I was working in the Casamance region of Senegal where there was a long-going conflict. Mm -hmm. And we tried to, uh, we the, working with the Senegalese, there was an effort to understand the roots of the conflict and why it so often would get close to resolution and then it would not resolve. And one of the theories that people had at the time was that the communities involved in the conflict had become so entrenched in their positions that they didn't have uh, skill sets to compromise. Compromise was, yes. was seen as, as a weakness and as a negative attribute. So if somebody was a proponent of compromise, they would be sidelined and would not be able to be in a leadership position where they could actually negotiate some sort of resolution. So one of the things we tried at the time was to bring the parties together to build skills around how do you negotiate agreements that involve compromise where there's give and take? Would that be an example of the kind of tool you all promote? Absolutely. I mean, we use a whole 
variety of uh, types of dialogue, processes, negotiation, mediation. I mean, these are all the building blocks of how you build peace. It's also very important, and you alluded to it, that it's an inclusive process because often it's who's not at the table that determines whether the peace process will be successful or not. And we've actually been doing research on that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's the people who have the skills to compromise, but often it's also all the people who aren't the guys with the guns. You know, the women or the victims of the conflict or, you know, ethnic groups who are the most oppressed. And when you don't bring them to the table, you often don't end up with the kind of solution that actually creates a pathway to peace. But one other point that's really important, and and that is it can't only be a top-down process. That if you've got a a more top-down mediation or negotiation going on, it's got to be connected to the communities that are often deeply scarred by years of conflict. And those grievances and divides need to be addressed as well. I want to touch on the point of the role of women in resolving conflict. I have two examples in my past, one in the Kazamans and one in northern Uganda, the Karamoja region, Uh where you had groups that were in conflict. They'd been in conflict for years and years and years. And there was a a government-led effort in both countries to try to broker a resolution amongst the warring parties. And instrumental in reaching some cessation of conflict and some agreements at the community level. So the agreements weren't at a high level. They were amongst elders in in communities. Mm -hmm. Was the role of women where the elders, the men elders who were the negotiators, sort of got to a point where they weren't making progress. And then it was women from the communities who were able to, in both those cases, who were instrumental in in getting agreements reached and adhered to by the communities. Have you seen that? Well, absolutely and plus, there's research that tells us that when women are a part of the peace process, they're at the table, that their participation is more likely to lead to an agreement that will sustain. There's a 30% increase in the probability that that peace accord will last 15 years or more. Uh And then we've also got the wonderful stories in places like Liberia, commemorated in Abby Disney's beautiful movie, Pray the Devil Back to Hell, where the women basically barricaded the men in the room and said, you're not coming out till you have a peace (laughs) agreement. And, you know, why is this? It's because women often are those who bear the brunt of a conflict. And so they have a greater investment in reaching a deal that will bring stability back to the community. Right. They're the caretakers often of the communities. So looking not just at your work at USIP, but more broadly at the work you've done across the span of your career, how do you see peace building interacting with humanitarian response? And what do you see as the differences between pure peace building kinds of activities and humanitarian response activities? Because I think they get confused sometimes. I think about it this way. If you spend a lot of your life going to places that have been bombed or destroyed by natural disasters, you know, where families are displaced and people are living in terrible conditions. At some point, you have to start asking, 
how do we prevent these things from happening? Mm -hmm. Because you can alleviate the suffering, but it's, it's really soul-sucking to go over and over again to these kinds of places. And even in the last four years since I left USAID, we have seen a steep increase in the amount of need for humanitarian assistance. The U.S. budget has gone up something like a factor of four. Right. And we're seeing these historic levels of people who are displaced by conflict. And um, you've probably heard the statistic that a decade ago, 80% of the international humanitarian budget went to victims of natural disasters. And a decade later, that is flipped, and 80% of assistance now goes to victims of violent conflict. In fact, across the episodes of this series, the speakers that have shared their perspective have all made the point that right now it is conflict that is driving the need for humanitarian response, and that that's different than it was in the past. It's conflict, and it's conflict that's concentrated in a handful of states Mm -hmm. where you have states that have the worst governments that are the most illegitimate in the eyes of their citizens or just unable to provide essential services. If you take those top most fragile states, you have a really strong correlation with the top states for sources of violent extremism, Uh sources of refugees and migrants, and where we have the possibility of famine or the presence of civil wars or violent conflict. Right. So if you're wanting to get ahead of this terrible increase in the need for humanitarian assistance and the increase in suffering and displacement, you have to start looking at how do you address this fundamental fragility that is highly associated with all of these causes of humanitarian need. How do we do business differently with both development, with provision of humanitarian assistance, and fundamentally, how do we connect these efforts with our diplomatic and security approaches? But if we think of those states, places like Syria, Sudan, Central African Republic, Somalia, Yemen, Iraq, Afghanistan, the prevention activities, it would seem to me, are heavily oriented towards some sort of political process, that it's a political process that is going to lead to a res- some resolution or some stabilization of the situation. Whereas on the humanitarian side, the principles of humanitarian response are not to be politically driven, but to be neutral. So how do you resolve that tension between prevention having to address the political interests, equities, grievances, and the humanitarian response side, which may be happening side by side, needing to have a level of neutrality? You know, in my experience, often humanitarian assistance is the only thing moving on the chessboard. Mm-hmm. because you get a sense that action is happening. And you know many courageous people, both members of the affected communities, aid workers, are doing an amazing job of saving lives. But there's not always a commensurate level of activity on the political side. And so one thing that needs to happen is there needs to be a greater call for political action when there is a grave humanitarian crisis. South Sudan comes to mind, right. you know, which is this enormous bleeding wound. Half the country is displaced. There's not really 
an active ongoing political process right now. I mean, there right, are moves right. and fits and starts, and you know, we are without a U.S. special envoy right now, um, and U.S. leadership matters greatly in a lot of these instances. So that's one issue. Well, and that would be a good example of where the lack of political process or efforts by the international community to engage politically to stabilize the situation results in increased demand for humanitarian response. Because in South Sudan, at least right now, there's no clear end in sight to that conflict. Yeah, I mean, you have talks going on, kind of a sputtering process, and ultimately you need the region to really engage. I do think that U.S. global leadership matters a great deal, both in terms of our ability to provide assistance, but also the need for us to provide the kind of political leadership that creates pressures and incentives and demands for movement on peace discussions. At least from my perspective, it looks like there is a stepping back um, from U.S. leadership that uh, the current administration is trying to to step back and not be the default actor to bring parties to the table. Well, I think there's an understandable desire for there to be international burden sharing. That is not a new sentiment in the American public. At the same time, there's a very distinct role for the U.S. voice and the U.S. leadership in terms of the moral authority that we traditionally have been able to bring to some of mm -hmm. these processes and the leadership that we have historically provided. But back to your question about uh, the political and the humanitarian. Yeah. The other area that I think there's an opportunity for greater progress is that there be an alignment of goals. Uh -huh. And that we ensure that our security and our political objectives are aligning with the goal of creating the conditions for people to go home, for people to be suffering less. Sometimes we have differing longer-term or short-term objectives. Right. And a good example is in Afghanistan, mm. where USIP partnered with Stanford University and Chatham House to do a 10-year retrospective of a lot of investment in Afghanistan to try to bring that country out of conflict. And investment in stabilization investment, and reconstruction, that whole, kind of investment? Uh, plus, plus. Uh -huh. And what we learned, and this was with a lot of participation of the Afghan, European, American colleagues who had worked on this, is that we actually had three separate lines of effort. We had the intel effort that was hunting al-Qaeda. Uh -huh. We had the military effort that was fighting the Taliban. And then we had all the humanitarian and development effort that was trying to reduce suffering and rebuild the state. Right. And they actually collided with one another right. because there wasn't a shared understanding of the goals we were pursuing. Yeah, or a clear setting of, of uh, shared objectives. Speaking of Afghanistan, one of the drivers of that conflict, and I think it has grown stronger over the years, is violent extremism particularly now with the Islamic State having a presence in the country or be now engaging in that conflict and bringing a very brutal kind of indiscriminate killing of civilians, trying to destabilize the country through the killing of, of civilians. How do you build peace when you're dealing with an actor who has no regard for human life? I think you have to take each one of these with 
the very specific contextual information about where they work, who are they recruiting, what's the environment. So you've got the Taliban, which you've seen, as you said, the incursion now of ISIS affiliates. Right. You know, it's different in Nigeria with uh -huh. Boko Haram, uh -huh. and it's different with Al-Shabaab or ISIS in Iraq. So Al-Shabaab in Somalia. In Somalia. Yeah. But what we're also seeing is because of the ability of people to move more freely across boundaries as well as social media, that they can more quickly become connected. So you have to think about it both as, you know, these transboundary social media problems, but also deeply rooted in local context and really think about it and attack it right. in both of those realms. Right. I mean, it would seem to me that uh, the addressing the, the local context in some ways is more doable because it's more tangible. You can try to understand by studying the antecedents of what the grievances are, what the injustices are that are driving people to uh, violence, or what the call to you know to glory is that's that that is attracting people to to violence. What do you see as the causes of violent extremism? I think there is a growing consensus that the root of extremism is based on communities where people feel excluded. They don't have a voice in their future. They don't have a hope in their future. It's highly associated with fragile settings where they don't have an opportunity to participate in the political or social or economic life of that community. There are, of course, many instances in which they're more, they are wealthier, more educated adherents, but they are often in places where they don't feel like they see a just and hopeful future vis-a-vis uh -huh. -vis the government. And we're also seeing that where people are particularly ill-educated or illiterate, that they are more vulnerable to the predations of extremists who provide them with interpretations of their religion. And so it really gets at this correlation between highly fragile states, mm -hmm. which are either repressive, illegitimate, or just incapable. If you want to tackle the roots of extremism and people who are vulnerable to being recruited by extremists, you've got to begin looking at that. Well, I just wonder, even for communities that aren't so excluded, where they may be pretty normal communities in terms of their economic life relative to the area they live in, if the penetration of social media creates a vehicle for manipulating people's perception Absolutely. of what is just and, and of what their situation is so that it creates grievances, it nurtures grievances that then result in people becoming uh, recruits into these violent movements. I mean, I think it's both. It's people who are vulnerable to be recruited because the extremists are offering them sometimes very tangible opportunities. I'll pay you. You right, get a right. wife. You get a job. I saw that a lot in northern Nigeria. But it's also oftentimes offering an opportunity to be a part of an exciting opportunity 
that's bigger than you are. It's a vision <laughs> of entering into something exciting and meaningful that right. you may not otherwise have in your life. You know, there is research that says the same kind of impulses enable people to be recruited into insurgencies as into extremist groups, which is all about fighting for something that is bold and bigger than yourself. Right. It's fundamentally about enabling folks to live in an environment where both basic needs are met and they have a vision of their lives as moving forward in a way that feels meaningful. Do you think that there are approaches that can be effective in countering violent extremism through the same social media methods that are used to promote violent extremism? So at USIP, do you do work with social media? Do you look at that dimension? You can't see this, listeners, but Nancy is shaking her head yes. So what do you do at USIP? So three years ago, we spun off a partner entity as a 501c3 called Peace Tech Labs. All of our media, data, and technology work. And it's basically creating those tools that enable technology to be used in more peaceful ways. Because what we're seeing is that technology is neutral, right? It can be used for good or it can be used for evil. Thank you for saying that. So how do you create a greater emphasis on the use for good? And some of the work that Peace Tech Lab does is things like tracking hate speech in South Sudan Mm -hmm. or in Burma, as well as enabling Peace Tech entrepreneurs to come up with ways to apply peace technology very tangibly in the lives of conflict-affected communities. It seems to me that this brings us to a a very difficult place where on one hand you have malign actors who have very well-defined and and increasingly well-honed strategies for creating dissatisfaction, creating grievance, and recruiting people into violent causes, creating the perception that the only way Mm -hmm. to respond to to these grievances is through uh, joining this violent movement. And that, that takes very proactive measures, so targeting measures, a lot of thought into the constructing messages that can manipulate people's emotions. So it's very deliberate. One might posit that you need uh, an equally effective set of deliberate actions through social media to counter it, but that then in a free society starts to worry me about having a government or some other act or some institution putting out messages that are intended to manipulate people's perceptions, even if, even if the intention is to right. mani- manipulate them for good. Well, this is, this, is obvi- this is obviously a very live debate that's going on in our country right now. But let me bring it back to a very specific example, because I was just in Iraq. And this is a country that was you know, the incubator of ISIS, which is a terrible scourge right now that is still being battled. But The roots of that were in the Sunni members of that society who felt terribly, terribly disenfranchised and excluded from uh, the Maliki government. Right. And, you know, you can very directly trace back those who started the ISIS movement to 
terrible exclusionary government in Iraq. Right. So what's interesting in the conversation right now in Iraq is that there is a recognition of that. You know, we've defeated ISIS militarily in terms of territory in Iraq, but it's still very present. The ideology is still very present in in communities. You know, in seeds yeah. around. Uh-huh. And this is sort of the fundamentals, Conflict 101, that when you have an exclusionary government and huge groups or groups in general are, are excluded from opportunity and participation, you sow the seeds for violent conflict, you sow the seeds for the potential of people being recruited into extremist ideologies. Looking at a situation like Iraq or Syria next door or, or Yemen, it's clear that those communities are also being influenced and affected by external forces, external to the community, external to the country. So you've got a lot of different interests. Yes. Some whose interest is to see conflict perpetuated. Um, others who, who would like to see the conflict end, but with a clear winner, with one side dominating another. Mm-hmm. Are you and your collaborators at USIP looking at strategies that take into consideration the complexity of the conflicts that we face today? Always, and they're always complicated. <laughs> and, you know, in fact, we're seeing that some of these civil wars are increasingly becoming internationalized and lasting longer as a result, Syria being a, the, a prime example. Right. So a couple of strategies. One is the importance of connecting high-level policy moves, diplomatic, national government kind of approaches with ways that you create reconciliation at the community level. Mm-hmm. That you, if you don't have both, you don't create the stronger, more resilient country that can withstand the kind of influences and the kind of predations that come in right. um, from regional or, in, or international interests. And of course, you know, we're, we're talking at a time where there's an increased level of, of great power competition, right. regional competition. In Iraq, for example, you have Turkey, you have the Gulf, you have Iran, you have the U.S., all with interest. But the difference between Iraq and Syria, I would argue, where you have Syria with a similar set of conflicting interests, is that it is in everybody's interest for Iraq to be stable. And it is in everybody's interest to not have a reemergence of ISIS. Uh Doesn't a lot of it come down to individuals to to particular leaders and whether those leaders rise to the occasion? It always does. I would just amend that by saying it's leadership at every level. Uh-huh. So often the kind of leadership that occurs at a community level uh, matters deeply because it enables people to go home and then those people can vote. And USIP is working with tribal, religious, and uh, local governmental leaders in half a dozen communities around Iraq to create local peace accords. Because, you know, oftentimes Mm -hmm. when you've got, in this case, the rollback of ISIS, what it leaves behind is a very fractured community and a lot of local grievances. And so there needs to be processes for re-knitting the social infrastructure as much as you have to rebuild the physical infrastructure. And, and that goes back to your earlier point about bottom-up action. Yeah, absolutely. And commu- community level action being 
uh, essential uh, to broader resolution of conflict um, and crisis. And for sustaining the peace. For sustaining the peace. Well, let me, let me ask you one final question, Nancy. Looking ahead, uh, we've talked about technology, we've talked about community action, we've talked about the role of national and multinational actors all having <laughs> um, roles to play in uh, building and sustaining a more peaceful world. What's missing? Right now, if you survey the landscape, are there major pieces that are missing? You know, if I were queen of the universe, I would have some mechanism to hold people accountable who are completely abusing their people. Uh -huh. You know, so with sovereignty, I believe should come greater responsibility. But for all kinds of reasons, it's a very difficult tool to build. There right. was a big effort around responsibility to protect some years ago as a UN, if not legal convention, at least to be a more broadly accepted norm. Well, the International Criminal Court does some of that, and in Kosovo and Bosnia, there has been some accountability for actions that leaders took there. Is there, that that's the sort of thing that's you're talking one, about? That's one aspect of it, but that's long after usually atrocities have been committed. It doesn't enable you to stop terrible things from continuing to uh -huh, happen. Uh -huh. You know, as we're seeing in certain countries right now, where it just goes on and on, and you. All you can do is provide humanitarian assistance often. There aren't legal grounds for doing anything else. Well, and if anything, we're, we're probably at a moment in terms of international currents where there's less support for, say, a rapid intervention to prevent something like the Rwanda genocide. So after that occurred, there was a soul-searching. Right, and, and the responsibility to protect was really vigorously championed by the Canadians, as you recall. Right, and there was some consensus amongst yeah. the international community that there had mm -hmm. been a failure and that there should mm -hmm. have been a, an intervention to protect people from that genocide. But what I do see hopefully emerging is a growing consensus on how to get ahead of all of these crises mm -hmm. and this whole issue of state fragility that we've discussed, this illegitimacy and lack of capacity, where there is a growing consensus that you need to enable states to be more inclusive, to be more responsive to their citizens, if you want to prevent the kind of violent conflict and extremism that is increasingly concentrated in this group of states where about a billion people live by the way, where the greatest levels of extreme poverty are. Right. And that if we don't think more effectively about our development, humanitarian security, and diplomatic capabilities, working together on that problem set, we will not get ahead of all of these pro other problems that emanate from these fragile countries. So that's the macro view, and that is a great place to end this conversation, because I think you do sketch out a vision for an integrated approach of diplomacy, development, and security that has to act with state actors, with institutions at the community level to build the capacities that will allow conflict resolution, allow the kind of peace-building activities we've been talking about. And to, and to put those peace-building tools in the hands of people at every level.
citizens yeah. to the governments. And just to put a note of hope in, we believe very strongly at USIP that peace is both practical, but it's very possible. And it happens all the time, and it's a process that requires citizen action and citizen responsibility, each of us. Nancy, thanks so much for a terrific conversation. I know our listeners are going to um, benefit from this. Um, now, I follow you on Twitter, and I encourage all of our listeners who want an informed voice on development to follow Nancy. And I want to thank our listeners, both new and returning, for caring about these issues. I'd love to hear what you think about this discussion, so send your comments on SoundCloud or iTunes, leave us a review. You can also listen to previous episodes of A Deeper Look and stay tuned. We've got some other great episodes coming up through the rest of the year. Nancy, thanks again. Great to be with you, Patrick.